0: Friends and listeners, and welcome to episode 7 of season 8 of the Thoth Hermes podcast today on Sunday, the 10th of April 2022. And before you jump over the intro, before you go anywhere else by clicking on those chapter marks, because I know some of you do that, they don't listen to those intros, which is fine, but today I need to say you something before you go. Please listen to the outro today, after the interview, because I'm going to announce our anniversary specials, which will happen as from the 20th of April in 10 days, Thor's Hermes podcast will have its 5th anniversary. And I must say I'm very happy about that, especially about the past that we did in those 5 years. So there will be real special things and especially one big surprise that I'm going to to announce to you so if you're keen to know of course you'll find that later on on the website and everywhere but wait for the outro today or jump there if you prefer and get the news right and now it's time to say hello to each of you hello great to have you here with me for this new episode where we will speak about the illuminati but not about the ones you think, not about that world conspiracy theory number one or maybe number two, but about the real Illuminati, the Bavarian Illuminati that had their very short existence in the 1770s in Germany, in Bavaria. And we're going to speak to about them to John E. Graham, why I will tell you after the first piece of music before that. Well, you know what's coming. Before that, I have to say thank you. Thank you to all of you for being here. Those who are new here, those who have been here many times, are returning customers. And I would really like to say thank you to all of you. Thank you, especially here today, because almost five years, that's really nice to have you all and more and more of you every week. Thank you for that. And thank you especially for those of you who are supporters of the show. Without you, this show couldn't exist. You are, unfortunately, rather few of you, uh, not quite 50 people who are supporting this show financially, and it would be really nice that it would be more than about one per thousand um, who supports the show financially of your listeners. Yes, we have now achieved 5,000 listens each week. I know those big podcasters laugh at that kind of figures, but... Hey, we are in a niche, and I'm really happy where we have gone. That is is really great. And, uh, well, so please, if you can, do some gesture and go onto the Patreon site and look for the Thoth Hermes podcast, or go on the Thoth Hermes website, T-H-O-T-H-E-R-M-E-S dot com. Click on the Patreon button. Become a patron. We would really appreciate, and we, as I say, we need your support. Thank you for that. Well, um, our 119th episode online, It's a, we have produced a few, five or six more, but um, actually only, well, only it's 119th episode that you can find online. And all those 119 episodes are on the website with all the show notes. Can you imagine? Go there, listen, read, find out more. That's what curiosity means, and that's what occultism is all about. Find out by yourself. Find the answers. Go out and look for gnosis. That's what we need to do also to make this world a bit less crazy than it is at the moment. Right, and uh, in order to do that, we have produced this show, and we are doing one new episode here today. And, well, let's put on some music, as always, um, yeah you say I just told you you have to be curious and find out I did find tried to find out who Airtone is Airtone I found that music which I really quite like it's a kind of ambient psychedelic I don't know exactly how to how to describe it but it's very very nice music which I like and um it's by that group Airtones or by that single person it's Creative Common Musics, um, uh, which I found online. And uh, I tried to find out something more about the musicians who produced it. I couldn't. So if you are Airtones and listening to this, do let me know. So we know and we can tell our listeners who you are and what makes you produce such lovely music. Okay, so let's start with the first piece by Airtone. And that first track we're going to listen to is called Black Snow. So, Black Snow by Airtone. And after that, I'll be right back with telling you more about today's interview. Enjoy. know by Airtune, and maybe we'll find out who Airtune really are. The Bavarian Illuminati. Well, the order of the Illuminati, the Bavarian order of the Illuminati, is probably the most famous secret society in the world, at least by its name. And it only lasted for 11 years. And once again, and I'll tell it again in the interview as well, we are talking about them. We are not talking about some conspiracy theories that are around all the time. It's about the Bavarian Illuminati and about a book and about a translation. The really most in-depth history and documented with rituals, etc., Um, work on the Bavarian Illuminati has been put together in the first half of the 20th century by a French author and um, preeminent historian of the occult worlds, um, René Le Forestier. Um, Much underestimated nowadays, but, but, but Inner Traditions has done a great job in producing a translation of this French work the, on the Bavarian Illuminati by Monsieur Le Forestier. And its translator is John E. Graham, an award winning translator, actually. He's an artist, a writer, and he specializes in esoteric topics and surrealism. And he's really a highly interesting guy. He did an enormous job. He worked, I think. 11 years on that translation, which is exactly the duration of the Illuminati order themselves. Well, no wonder, because it's more than 900 pages. It's really, if you want to know about them, and of course, that will also give you some hints on um, how those how those conspiracies then started and coming into the world. Um, it's so interesting that in many of those stories, you only learn about a group or some people by their enemies. That was true about the the Gnostics in the early th- third or fourth centuries. We know about, about them from their enemies' writings. And in the case of the Bavarian Illuminati, it was mostly also from their enemies, from the police, from the governments, etc., who, when they closed down the society, found the documents and they were reporting on them. And that's the, all those interesting details that we know of are from mostly from those from those sources but anyway i'm telling you too much already it will be up to our guest john graham to tell you all that and we're gonna really have a nice nice discussion on that topic so um, i'm gonna read you as i often do a little excerpt, but i Will I will tell you, um, just from the very beginning, I will read you from Chapter 1, The Founding of the Order and the Man Who Founded It, and just so you see how this book works. When word ran through the small Bavarian university town of Ingolstadt in February, on February 6, 1748, that Professor Weishaupt had become the father of a son, his colleagues had little trouble foreseeing the most brilliant academic fortunes for the newborn, if he exhibited any inclination for study when he grew older. Professor Weishaupt was in fact the protégé of the powerful trustee of the university, Baron von Ickstadt, who was sitting personal advisor, administrator of the Free Provincial Tribunal of Hirschberg and vice-president of the Bavarian Electors' Privy Council. A Westphalian by birth, Jean-Georges Weishaupt had been the student then tutor of law at Würzburg University, where Eckstadt had been one of his teachers. The duties incurred by this mystical fatherhood soon ceased to be merely platonic. George Weishaupt died in September 1753 in Heiligenthal near Würzburg, and his son Adam Weishaupt distinguished himself for his application to his studies, and his excellent memory allowed him to successfully execute the extraordinary and useless tour de force that were the triumph of the Bavarian father's mechanical teaching methods. Graduating from the Jesuit college at the age of 15, Adam Weishaupt immediately entered university as a student at the law school. Although a hard-working and attentive student, the study of the pen deers could not absorb all his time, and he spent many long hours in Ekstad's library. The books the young scholar found there and read so vividly, so avidly, exerted the attraction for forbidden fruit and left a profound impression upon his mind. And yes, that's how it all started. You want to know more? Well, get the 900 pager and you'll know all about the real Illuminati. And I think it's worth it. Right, so. Let's go and meet my friend John E. Graham and talk about this wonderful translation and many other things on the Bavarian Illuminati. And as usual, after a bit over 30 minutes, we will have a little break and listen to some more music. But for the moment, let's go out to Vermont and speak to John E. Graham. Here comes the interview. I am holding in my hands here a very heavy book, uh, 900 pages, basically. I would call it a brick, like some of those occult books are called a brick. And this is a book called The Bavarian Illuminati, and it's a book that has been translated into English for the first time, I believe. We will check that out with our guest here today, uh, who is John Graham, John E. Graham, who did the translation of this wonderful book by René Le Forestier, the French um, researcher in occult, occultism, occult masonry. We'll talk about all of that here today. And it's my big pleasure to welcome John here on the podcast on Thought Hermes. Welcome, John. And hello. Well, thank you for uh, having me on. I'm looking forward to speaking with you about this. Of course, this is going to be exciting. Of course, whenever you... Uh, you, you pronounce the word Illuminati, of course, that excites many people, mostly those out of the occult uh, uh, area because they have no idea what it is really about. And we're going to talk about the real Illuminati order here today, mostly. Um, and uh, But before we go into that and into the book, I think there are two other topics we need to talk about. And, Maybe we start, um, if you don't mind, John, not with you. We'll do that in the second step. But maybe we should start with the author of the original, the French original of the book that we are talking here about with René Le Forestier, um, who compiled this huge work. Um, What do we know about him and what has he done else than, than this book on the Illuminati?
1: Well, in my search for more information about him, just to compile an author biography, I found that there was next to nothing online on the Internet. And uh, even my contacts in France really had nothing much to say about him, except that he's highly regarded for his scholarly studies of not just the Illuminati, mm-hmm. but numerous other occult groups Uh other forms of Freemasonry, uh, Martinism, which uh, occurred in three forms. The elect Cohen started by uh, Pasquale de Martinez, then uh, Jean-Claude Louis Martin, Mm -hmm. who created the more modern form that was then adopted by the uh, great French occultist during the occult revival in the late 19th century, Papus. Mm -hmm. So he's one of the things about the 4SDA is he understands the importance of context in describing these activities so you have the the tableau of the time and in this book the rival occult groups that the illuminati were contending with there's a kind of a uh, fight for members mm-hmm. you could put it that way mm-hmm. people were looking to seduce the best minds to their particular cause and some of the rival groups uh, that were on the scene before the Illuminati started and were still there uh, during its zenith did not take well the fact that when they discovered that this secret order was insinuating itself into their midst and Mm. promising their followers access to deeper more complex truths that the truths that they were told they would get from these other orders were just hoaxes and frauds. Mm-hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. and that is a bit the same that happened again in the other period that Lede with Forestier describes with the early Martinist period you had the impression that the same happened over again in France that um, there were several currents uh, Martinism also Egyptian Freemasonry the early one um, that would try to draw people away from what is called regular Freemasonry right?
1: Right well yeah you have the same it actually even occurred in Germany I think at the Congress of uh, Wilhelmsbad in 1782, Mm -hmm. where the strict observance was trying to regain its footing after its uh, claims to be directly descended from the Templars had been challenged rather seriously. So they were trying to recast themselves as just the benevolent order of the holy city, the benevolent knights of the holy city. And Jean-Baptiste Vilhermos, who was a Martinist from Lyon, who had joined the strict observance, came in with a plan to recast the strict observance as a Martinist order. And while they didn't dismiss it out of hand, they took it under advisement. Uh, He still wielded some influence at that time absolutely
0: and um, well sometimes you ask yourself how much is just about the individuals that were involved and and that they just try to create importance for themselves through those orders and how much was really intentional uh, in a true way so that they wanted to create real
1: order It's just something they could base their own power on right oh absolutely that's i mean and that's another element that i find is very commendable in Laforestier's work is his deaf psychological portraits of the individuals involved. And you can see, uh, you know, he starts with Weishaupt's humble beginnings as a professor of canon law in Ingolstadt. And the same uh, troubles that he caused himself due to his autocratic learnings and arrogance mm-hmm. were what metastasized throughout the entire. History of the order. There are so many of the problems that he had, he would have avoided had he not alienated some of his more uh, adept followers and ultimately inspiring those that uh, ratted him out.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. Well, we'll go into that story more in detail Um, about Le Forestier, maybe just a few other sentences. My feeling, well, this is not a real comparison, but he, in a way, what reminds me uh, in him with Manly P. Hall was that you also never found out with Manly P. Hall, like with Le Forestier, where they really belonged to uh, did they really practice this or that um, and with Le Forestier it's the same he's so objective in his books um, oh, absolutely it's hard to find out uh, do you know anything about his personal background
1: or have you found out that no they- I've, I've searched and uh mm. i discussed it with several occult publishers that i know in paris or right. and outside of paris and nobody could really shed any real light on it yeah he uh you know, just uh, since the, over the period, I translated this uh, 15 some odd years ago, actually for a friend of mine mm-hmm. who had uh, planned to publish it. And then I spent years trying to track down the estate. Right. And, and it was out of print at ArcGay Milano, who was the publisher. Mm-hmm. And... It's finally, I mean, it's come out now because uh, 70 years after his death absolutely. it's in the public domain. So hopefully all his books will now be made available. R.K. Milano had a wonderful occult yeah. library. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and absolutely. And they should do that. Well, I may say that here,
0: I'm not being paid by this publishing house, edition de la Tarante. I found out myself when researching uh, for this episode. And those of you listeners who speak French. Some of you know that I lived in France for 12 years. So, um, uh, there is this house, Edition de la Tarente, with they have now republished the whole Archimilan, um, uh, French catalog, over 300 books, amazing publishings. And, uh, some of them are by Le Forestier. And, uh, I will put the, their name and their link in the show notes. I think it will be interesting for those who speak French and the others will have to wait that uh, John will translate them and publish them within the traditions, don't
1: we? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) No, I'm excited to learn that, too. I had no idea. There's a lot of books that they have, uh, not just by Le Forestier, but others like Alex Denon. Absolutely. Absolutely. And me from colloquiums about uh,
0: occult masonry, uh, where several people spoke and their recordings from those. So it's an exciting catalog, indeed. And, um, uh, but the only thing that I think to know is that Le Forestier is a pen name for Forestier, but that doesn't really, I mean, it's, his name was René Forestier and not Le Forestier, but I mean, well, that doesn't change an awful lot, actually. Right. <laughs> right. Now let's talk about somebody you know better, uh John Graham <laughs> <laughs> so uh, John, what brought you into that world of um occultism or occult masonry in particular here, but um well, we'll talk about the fact if is it masonry really or not so we will go that, into that more in depth later on, but um what brought you into this world um Have you been doing this for a long time since your early years, or what's what's your background there?
1: Well, it's been, I mean, I've been interested in the occult since I was a teenager, but I didn't get interested in it to the degree that I am now until, uh, like you, I lived in France for a time. And while I was there, I met a lot of the uh, Surrealists that had been members of the uh, Paris group oh right under Andre Breton mm-hmm. and there's a and you know their successors there's still quite a bit of activity by people who are surrealists but the thing that uh, I mean the first time I ever heard of uh, Martinism was from uh, Andre Breton's foreword to the book by Pierre Marby Le Mirroir de Merveille The Mirror of the Marvelous mm-hmm. which is a wonderful book and He and uh, Mabi, who was the cultural attaché to Haiti at the time, uh, explored trying to find uh, information about why Pasquale had gone there and what what he was doing there, because you know that's where he vanished from the face of the earth. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I. you know, and uh, Breton was also friends with uh, Robert Robert Amberlin and other major occult figures. And especially after World War II, the occult became a defining principle in surrealist activities with uh, the 1947 exhibit with the altars and the uh, uh, exhibit of the Enchanter's Domain in New York in 1960. So it was a real easy step to go from surrealism to expand that. I mean, it was not only that folklore, occult uh, philosophy, esoteric tradition, and indigenous traditions. Mm-hmm. I just became, uh, you know, going back past, you know, the 20th century, looking for the roots, or right. the time of the beginnings, as uh, Eliade would say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, that's exciting, and it's it's
0: a link that... Um, is, at least in North America, I believe, not so much explored. In France, it's a bit more present, evidently. But uh, this link from uh, the surrealists to the occult worlds, and also Spain, of course, with Dali and and so on, um, this this has been a very present thing. But um, we should explore that one day with you here on the podcast, uh, the link between surrealism and occultism, shouldn't we?
1: Well, I have been writing on that i did a talk at the esoteric book conference some years ago Mm -hmm. on the same subject and uh, uh, yeah it's it's endlessly fascinating absolutely i'll take you up on that (laughs) (laughs) okay
0: great and today john what's what are you also if i may ask you don't have to answer that question if you don't want uh do you are you a practitioner of any of any tradition or is it just an academic interest or or how how do you live it
1: uh, well, my personal, uh, position is more pagan. Mm-hmm. I'm really, uh, uh, the runes are the one system that I've really, uh, embraced. Right. I mean, I like, I mean, I've studied Tarot and a lot of others, mm-hmm. but there's something about the rune system and, uh, you know, the supporting cosmology. Right. I mean, like surrealism, I think Norse cosmology mm-hmm. can't be... Taken at face value, there's a lot of. Right. I mean, in the Norse system, you have kenning, so you know that what something says it is can be something very different. Absolutely, and that's the same with surrealism. Definitely, it's the same with many of those occult
0: traditions in a way, but of course in in different ways. So to speak
1: right, but that's you know that's the purpose of initiation. Exactly, to learn to get more advanced readings of absolutely absolutely the basic the prime material absolutely
0: fascinating well thank you for sharing that with us so now let's let's move on to to this big brick I, i have here um i mean do we know do you know of any other book be it contemporary today or being a little bit older uh, that has treated in such an in-depth way with let's call them the bavarian illuminati because that's what we are talking about here and it's also the title of the book so the original illuminati of the 1780s 1770s, 1780s Um, is there any other work that you know that has gone so far as far as this one
1: not in English and I don't mm. think there's anything comparable in French either mm. and as I believe you know some of these records may have been destroyed in World War II mm. due to the uh, heavy bombing of Germany Certainly. by the Allies <laughs> yeah. that there you know this may be the only source you know for this material left uh, I mean I'm sure there's plenty of archives that survive, but uh, I don't know if the the material held by the uh, Theodore of Good Council Lodge in Munich, which they would not share all with the author.
0: Yeah, there were oh, really? some things
1: that they they restricted, they would not let him see, but they shared a good deal of what they had. Mm-hmm. Did Was that Lodge's uh, records affected in any way by war? I don't know. We don't know, yeah. But no. there are things that are likely to not have survived. So you have, with this author who is a meticulous uh, researcher, Mm -hmm. and the list of sources, I mean, the the reading that went into it is equal to what Adam Weishaupt suspected of a novice Illuminati member. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. it's a, you know, years and years of correspondence. You know, there's the, uh, all the material that the uh, Bavarian police seized from the house of his most loyal confederate Mm. uh, Zwack, Mm. also known as Cato yeah yeah Uh, you know it was years and years of letters and that's what became the source of much of the uh, let's say highly inflammatory reinterpretations of The raw data. Exactly.
0: Well, well, let's put some, some, try to put some order in things. Let's talk about some people first, maybe, because I mean, my listeners here are. I'm sure very well aware of the general history of that, but certainly not uh, of the in-depth background. Um So and no worries. Even if we talk for a full hour on this, you will still have to read this book because it's 900 pages. So I don't need to say more. <laughs> um, um So maybe, of course, the very first person we should talk about that define a bit more about him is the one that you just mentioned, Adam Weishaupt, and two whose name at least is quite familiar, I, I'm sure, to everyone, uh, at least to everyone listening here. So Adam Weishaupt, um, how how do we explain who he was?
1: Well, Adam Weishaupt was a uh, professor of canon Law at Ingolstadt University, and he was virally anti-clerical. His uh, he had gone up, he had uh, been educated in the Jesuit school system, which was the school system of Bavaria. And though I believe the Jesuits were technically uh, disbanded at that time by the Pope, I think some, some I don't remember the exact year, but in 1760s, mm-hmm. 1770, the Pope disbanded the Jesuit order and then they reformed around 1824. Mm-hmm. But all the Jesuits, were still in their same positions of power. They were still running the educational uh, institutions of Bavaria. Bavaria actually deserves a little mention for context in that so far as compared to what the other uh, principalities, electorates of what was to be Germany or what was then the Holy Roman Empire, the remnants of the Holy Roman Empire, it was uh, completely uh shielded from all the Reformation values mm. that had swept across. In fact it was the center of the Counter Reformation and I believe you know one of the elector counts of the a- sometime in the 16th century, decided to just seal the borders, remove all Protestant influence and turn it into what could be compared to North Korea of the Middle Ages. Yes, together
0: with parts of Austria, actually, which is my country, because, of yep. course, the Holy Roman Empire was ruled for ages by the Habsburg um, uh, right. uh, Archdukes, actually, they were just and they became emperors through that. And they, many of those things that happened in Bavaria also happened in at least big parts of Austria
1: at the time, yeah. Hmm. So, so what the war that that uh Weishaupt was fighting against the Illuminati and was was trying his pay, uh, fighting against the Jesuits led to his creation of the Illuminati because he could see just from his own position. As a professor trying to bring banned books into the curriculum and having to fight the uh, established religious order that mm-hmm. still ruled the, the university, despite uh, the fact that it's his his mentor, who he later turned on for no apparent reason. But this seemed to be a personality quirk of his. Mm-hmm. Uh you know, they still wielded a lot of uh, of clout. So everything he did was subject to second-guessing. And he felt that he was being persecuted and was subject to uh, uh, a constant attempts to sil- be silenced and removed from his position. Mm-hmm. So when he started the Illuminati Order, it was with like five of his uh, uh, most trusted students and Advisors and May first, seventeen seventy six was their first meeting. Right, <laughs> and and do we know what type of books it was that he
0: wanted to re-establish in, into teaching at the time? Was it spiritual books? Was it law books? What what type of books would it be?
1: Well, there was legal books, but there were books espousing uh, what we would call democratic principles now. Mm-hmm. You know the values of. Uh, uh, Man's ability to perfect himself without uh, following the uh, dogma of a, of a external institution, things like that. Yeah, and seventeen
0: seventy six, of course, is in that respect also a very interesting year to create that order, right? Because right, that's something that you Americans know very well as year,
1: hmm. right? Yeah. Okay. And there is sympathy between Vice uh, helped and some of the founding fathers years later. I mean, Thomas Jefferson wrote approvingly of him like in 1801 or something when he first heard about him. Exactly. And he talked about Abbey Boroul's attack on the Illuminati as the ravings of a lunatic, a Bedlamite. I think (laughs) to be precise.
0: But I I think it's very important to to, to really be clear about those origins also when we then briefly at the end of this interview we'll talk about Illuminati today, so to speak. Uh, um, Because it is a Please correct me if I'm saying this wrongly. It is a it is rooted the movement of the Illuminati originally is rooted in a deep search of democratic development and development of the world away from being under the pressure of the church and other oppressors, right?
1: Exactly. No, that's that's totally true. Yeah. I mean that's one of the areas where the Illuminati philosophy is uh Totally uh, admirable, I think. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. But uh, yeah. their methods, well, in Weishaupt's autocratic tendencies, had it, you know. As often as often is the case, right?
0: But yeah. um, I just, uh, a little, open little parenthesis here, um, book... F- five, I believe, on those six books which compose the book by by Le Forestier talks about the philosophy. And I think it's really important to read that thoroughly and to to, to get the point of that. Uh, Also Mm -hmm. to get out of those conspiracy theories that we hear so much about today.
1: No, and I think, you know, there's some echo there of the same kind of charges that were uh, made against the Knights Templar in 1307. Absolutely. You know, it sounds the same. And then, you know, years later, do you want you we were in the position of, well, was there merit to these charges or were they just made up out of whole cloth? Exactly. Exactly. But, um, so... Do I understand
0: right that in a way, uh, before enters another person, we will be coming uh, uh, to uh, quickly. Um, it was not a Masonic. It doesn't have a Masonic origin, actually. The Illuminati. No, not
1: at all. Right. No, in fact, I think uh, as I, I believe it's in you know the first chapter, the fourth of the first two chapters of the book. Weishaupt did think of. Joining the Masons was disappointed in what he saw there, and also saw the expense of becoming a member was off-putting. And it was only when uh, Baron Adolf Knigge—am I pronouncing that right? Exactly, Knigge. Yeah, that's exactly the other person. I, 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 thought we should now
0: make enter the stage. Exactly,
1: because Knigge was who really. I mean, Weishaupt created the Illuminati. It was, you know, his brainchild. But it was Carnegie that gave it the wings it needed to soar, not only all throughout Germany. I mean, it even included Goethe as a member, who mm-hmm. apparently signed on after his uh, aristocratic sponsor became a member. Are, are we sure about it. that, or is this just a rumor? No, this is, Goethe's name is in there, mm-hmm. but he was a, and so is Herder, the philosopher. Herder, yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. I can't remember the name of their, uh, the prince that was their benefactor, but oh, right. he became, and they the next day they both signed. Right. So they have their...
0: Probably in Weimar, because that's when both uh, yeah. lived in Weimar at the time. But let's talk about Baron Knigge because um, I may introduce one thing here, which maybe uh, people outside the German speaking countries don't know, but uh, Knigge, that, that's very Knigge, He wrote a book later on uh, about um, I don't re- remember exactly the title, but it's how to behave as a human being. Basically, that's somehow the, the title. Right. And that's a purely sociological work. I mean, it is in the philosophy of Weissab, where he wrote that little book. and But today, when you mention Knigge, it's a book everybody thinks it's a book about Behavior and they are when you enter in German Amazon Knigge, you have about three hundred books on how to behave on a banquet, how to be, how, how where to put the glasses and 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 the cutlery on the table and all of that. And every year we have few editions about the development. That's nothing to do with Knigge himself, but that's how his name survived oh, right it he sort of became the emily post of uh exactly but it's a complete myth. German world he has never done that actually
1: <laughs> just, oh, that's pretty funny just by the title of that of that that would be as book. if martha stewart had been a member of a secret society early in life absolutely absolutely so that's the knigget i had to say that for
0: our german listeners there are quite a few here of course and um, so i'm not sure they they are aware of that. So, But uh, what's your take on Knigge? Who was Baron Knigge?
1: He was an interesting individual who, uh, I mean, he was flawed as well. I guess he had, uh, a, the Forestier paints these incredibly uh, in-depth psychological portraits of all these people. So all their flaws and their strengths are just laid out there as he's yeah. dissecting them. Mm-hmm. But in uh, regard to the Illuminati order, Carnegie is the one that is made it so that it's worth remembering. Uh, he was able to uh, take it beyond Weishaupt's provincialism, give it a more cosmopolitan appeal. He was able to draw in many more of the aristocratic uh, individuals that were the mainstay of all the other groups and he was also the one that convinced Weishaupt to incorporate to to incorporate the Illuminati into Freemason lodges as a way to undermine them and take them over from within. And Renda, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah. So you know, and that is where the where the Illuminati presence really began to grow. And it spread out of you know beyond Munich and Regensburg and Ingolstadt into places like uh, Frankfurt and uh, Aachen, and then even into Vienna, right. Prague, uh, Budapest. I mean, at its at its zenith, I mean, there was it had members all over. I mean, they may have only amounted to like uh, several thousand individuals all told, but it was impressive.
0: And it, but the, it stayed basically within the Holy Roman Empire or within the yeah. Habsburg Empire at the time, you should say. Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. Which is an interesting case because it's almost like a reform movement um, for that part of the world at the time, which should have
1: followed it <laughs> in a way. Oh, and it also happened at a time when both Carl Theodore of uh, Bavaria... I think it was Emperor Joseph II, Mm -hmm. who was the Emperor of Austria at that time. Mm -hmm. Both were uh, considered to be rather liberal. Yes, I have my own,
0: yes, uh, about Joseph II. I have my own feelings. You are absolutely right. He is considered to have been liberal, but the real liberal person was his brother, who only ruled for two years before him, and huh. and he was Leopold II. Before he became emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, he was Archduke of Florence for of Toscana for many many years. He still reverts there. You find him in Florence in the main buildings. His portrait everywhere, and he was. the the first absolute monarch to to abolish the death penalty which is an achievement that has quickly been erased by his followers again. You know? yeah. yeah. yeah, So sorry to make that excursion nothing to do with the Illuminati. No, but a- um, it's an interesting historical fact, I believe. And um, but so we, we are now in the early 1780s, I believe. And Knicker he was member of the Illuminati for just
1: a few years, wasn't he? Right. Well, he and i he and Vice had a falling out more because of uh Vice insistence that everybody uh that he be, he remained the uh the the key figure mm-hmm. and he did he he didn't uh respond well to sharing power and he decided Carnegie was becoming too taking on too much important in the order mm. and eventually after a lot of uh, quarrels Carnegie just had enough and, and left
0: right just in time before other things then happened. right right and here comes our musical break for this show thank you john uh, for what you had said so far highly interesting and uh We're going to continue in the same vein after some music. And it's again Airtone who are going to be with us and play their music for us. Um, The first piece that we heard before the interview, part one, uh, was called Black Snow. And now, well, now we go and we listen to a piece called Space Dust. Um, Space Dust by Airtone will be our next musical piece. After which we return to John Graham to continue our really, really deep talk on those Bavarian Illuminati and about some other things, of course, that interest John and uh, also his future projects. And after the interview, immediately after the interview, we'll hear Blue Notes, the third track by Airtone here today. And after that, I have to say it again, don't Go away, because I'm going to announce you our special anniversary program, which is only 10 days away now. Okay, so now, first, Space Dusts by Airtone. Then back to John Graham for the interview, and then Airtone again with blue notes, and then the outro, remarks, and announcements. Stay tuned. (music) Well, most of the things, and you mentioned that earlier on, most of the things we know today about the Illuminati also here, please correct me if I'm wrong, uh, comes from the archives of the Bavarian state at the time. And so comes from the archives of the enemies of the Illuminati order, actually, which is often in history, the case that we know more about. occult movements from their enemies than from them themselves. Um, So how reliable are those sources? How uh, about what we know today uh, about the Illuminati?
1: I think well I think with uh, for SDA's book you're getting a more reliable uh, and impartial presentation of those documents than were given them I'm sure they were cherry picked and the most salacious details taken out of context. Uh, Because, you know, the Munich censors allowed them to be published at certain papers in the 1790s. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, to stray for a second from this field, I think that may be one of the triggers for turning them into the uh, mythologized Secret society that's everywhere mm-hmm, mm-hmm. was the release of these papers at a time when uh, just be prior to some of the greatest social upheaval Europe had experienced in centuries. So it's kind of the propaganda of
0: the Bavarian state in the 1790s that was at the initiation of the of the myth of uh, of conspiracy theory about the Illuminati. Later on, that's what you're saying, right?
1: Yeah, right. Yeah, I think that's a that's part of it. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you have the people after the. French Revolution trying to make sense of it. And I was listening to your talk with John Michael Greer where he's talking about those people that you know, the leaders that think they can create the future. Mm-hmm. But it's actually more chaotic than that. Yeah. And the way I always looked at it, there's a certain segment of society that, that feels there's it's it's a top down look. Mm. There's always uh a skilled elite that's pulling the strings. And if people weren't given certain books to read and uh, provoked in certain ways, they just go on being docile slaves of the established order. Right. But uh, in my feeling, and some of the Illuminati detractors did confess that yes, the French peasants had been treated rather shabbily. And yes, there was a lot of corruption. But that wasn't enough. Mm-hmm. to cause such a revolt. But I think it is. I think I it, there's people can get pushed is. to a certain point and it's that it just erupts spontaneously. Of and it always comes out of the fringes of society. Of course,
0: yes, definitely. And then other groups of society are looking for a reason for that because they don't believe that it can happen like that. And that's right. how conspiracy cr- starts being created somehow. Uh,
1: and I think people like to have the idea that they don't like the uncertainty of life. So yeah. If you have uh, puppet masters pulling strings, then there is no uh, acts of God. There's no chance mm-hmm. uh, disasters and catastrophes. Yeah. Somebody's to blame, but it also means there's an order beyond the order. Yeah, yeah exactly,
0: exactly. But uh, returning to the original idea of Weishaupt, can you define a bit more in detail what his aims were yes okay bring back forbidden teachings that that was the initial part but it was more than that it, it went much it was a social movement almost so to speak,
1: Oh, absolutely right? a social movement and i mean you can see it actually in the very first name before he settled on illuminati the Order of the Illuminati, as the name they were calling it, the Order of the Perfectibilists, mm-hmm. Perfectibilis, mm-hmm. which basically believed that in the, in the possibility of the individual to perfect himself and to become a, a rational human being that can get along well with his fellows that will no longer be uh, s- manipulated by the superstitions of the church and the corrupt needs of the monarchy to be forced to to suppress their own individuality and to do the bidding of church and state. Mm-hmm. So in order for human beings to reach a point where they could mature and become uh, fellows to one another in a world without war, so to speak, then it was it's a it's of supreme importance that the monarchy and the church be rendered inoffensive right but isn't
0: that the aim of many occult movements at the time and also later and today to to be as open-minded as possible and give as much leeway to to free thinking as possible
1: well i I think with some that's very true, but then with others, and it's it's based on a on a uh, belief that uh, you know cosmic order has a hierarchy, mm. and so that the sovereign and the priest are part of the natural order of things, mm. and that going out of that natural order of things is going to create a kind of uh, dystopia, mm. and I think uh, the Martinists. You know, in uh, uh, there, Jean-Baptiste Villermoules wrote his Nine Keys. And one of those was respect for sovereign and country. Mm. And, but, you know, if you read all of them, it's not slavish obedience. It's, uh, there's a lot there on on the individual taking responsibility for their own personal growth and self-development.
0: Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Interesting.
1: And so in a
0: way, it is quite logical what happened when Knigge came and brought masonry into that because masonry was searching itself at the time somehow. Um, parts of it went to far before any creation of the Memphis misraim cults or so, but um, they were looking into the Egyptian side of things in Vienna, for example, with Ignaz von right. Born, etc., And they tried to bring that deist, the they is thinking of uh, the, the one and the many into into masonry. And in a way, uh, this is just a parallel movement to all those searching themselves. And Knigge seems to jump at the occasion to have here something that could create a new path for Freemasonry, didn't he?
1: Oh, I think so. Yeah. I mean, he was, uh, he had been trying to uh, create a union between a uh, strict observance mm-hmm. and Illuminati that strict observance rejected. Which is a crazy re- idea somehow, because they are yeah, so on, on two strict, opposite
0: sides. Of, 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 of
1: Yeah, the strict yeah. observance was uh, I mean, they are all uh, I think all of their membership names on the Illuminati, you had Spartacus and Cato and they all took their names from classical figures, mostly from Roman Greece, but there were a few that named themselves Tamerlan and Odin. Evolved. Oh, really? But, oh, really? Okay. Yeah. I don't I have no idea who Odin was, but uh, yeah. he was a, okay. you know, a, a member in one of their, uh, uh, uh-huh. principalities, but the, uh, in the strict observance, they were all yeah followed by of something. Equus is from the equites of uh, of uh, imperial Rome. Exactly. It's the aristocratic uh, elite. It's on the other would, side would, of Cato and Spartacus. It's exactly the opposite. Right. It's right. <laughs> and it's, and yeah. they're the ones that were the only ones allowed to ride horses in war yeah, exactly. for a long time. That's where the word equestrian comes from. Yeah. But, you know, so you have this, and it was a... It, you know, extremely aristocratic movement. Mm. And one thing uh, you, that's noticeable in reading about the Illuminati to the depth that Laforestier presents them is that he was actually giving uh, people of lesser means a chance to become members of a secret society. Exactly.
0: And, and um, how did that go down with,
1: with Knigge? Uh Kniggy uh I don't think he was an elitist aristocrat. Mm-hmm. He seems to be a very uh you know, he, he seems to be kind of like the the I wouldn't say a hippie compared to Vice Help's, you mm-hmm. know, autocrat, but mm-hmm. uh he seems to be a very open minded and receptive person. Okay. So But he was also very much an aristocrat. But I don't think he looked down his nose at that. But he was always looking in his milieu for uh, good individuals that could further the aims of the order. Right. Either financially or through their reputation. Right. So
0: in 1784, if I'm right, Knigge leaves the Illuminati. Order, right? Um, and two years after that, so 1786, um, it's being disbanded basically by the authorities. Yeah,
1: 1786, 87. I mean, the initial, I mean, the Rosicrucians and other orders had already been making veiled attacks against this uh, subversive order that was. Believed uh, was a fairly nihilistic description of what they interpreted as the Illuminati beliefs, and but the real crushing blow didn't come until the elect, the Bavarian Elector's cousin, uh, the Duchess Princess Clementina, mm-hmm. was approached by a disgruntled former Illuminati member named Utsneider, mm-hmm. who was. Uh, Part of the retinue of a, of a nobleman senior, so he had access to her. And he told her these wild tales about what was going on, and she panicked.
0: Like, like what, for example? Was it political tales or was it?
1: Yeah, political tales. Well, he was uh, basically, he stressed the fact that uh, Weishaupt's interest in setting up a lodge in uh, Vienna. Was uh, a pretext for aiding the Habsburgs to take over Bavaria. That he was like a- advocating in, on behalf of the Bavarian swap, which was this uh, after the War of Bavarian Succession. Uh, yeah, both the Prussians and the Austrians were yes, sure warring over who had influence in Bavaria, and uh, the Emperor floated this idea that he would trade. Uh, the Netherlands for mm-hmm. Bavaria, that Bavaria belonged with his Catholic mm-hmm. Empire and the Netherlands, the Protestant written, Netherlands. Protestants yes, would be sure. more at home with the, the rest of Germany mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. the Prussians. So there was the Austrian thing. There was also what became the. Uh, Sorry, which is a crazy thought because that went exactly
0: against what Weishaupt's basic belief was, right?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, it's totally, yeah. he, he had no interest in the Bavarian swap at all. He was, he was. Exactly. He was
0: for, fighting for freedom, basically, to, to right. call it bluntly. Right. Mm. And then what was the, I interrupted you. Sorry.
1: Oh, that's right. Well, you know, Ute Snyder uh, talked to her, you know, about, you know, many of the things that became the stereotypes of the Illuminati hanging, hiding in the shadows, mm-hmm. uh, Ready to blackmail their sponsors with pilfered correspondence, okay. and if that failed, a bottle of poison. Because one of the uh, uh, prime skills of all Illuminati uh, uh, members, after a certain stage, was the brewing of uh, aqua tefana and other poisons. Okay, and this was, this was this became a staple of the of the myth mm-hmm, mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. pursued them and they were being attacked from all sides because the other orders whose members they were seeking to seduce also leapt in when the, uh, first, first attacks on the Illuminati went public. They also started, uh, sending out put publishing accounts of their own distorted views of what the Illuminati believed and what they wanted. Sure. Sure. Um, and, can we briefly, before we
0: return to that, can we briefly talk about the, the grade system of the Illuminati? Because um, Baron von Knigge, he kind of made a high degree system for Masonry out of that, but initially it was something completely different And you mentioned briefly earlier in this interview, the novice degree uh, um, where you start with, and you had to read an enormous amount of books. It also was reminds you to the, the preparatory year of the AA today. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what was that? What was, what was that degree system like? And what was the requests that, that, that happened and has it ever been fulfilled? Has it ever, has anyone in the 12 years that it existed ever achieved the top ranks actually?
1: Well, I'm sure there were. I don't know if they actually went through all the training because it seemed that some people made the leap from the uh, the novitiate or nursery, nursery school, into yes. the Aeropagus, mm-hmm. yeah. which was like the the, the ruling top. council of the Illuminati. Mm-hmm. And but you have your novitiate and minerval grades, which were the lower grades, and those are grades that Vice had worked on, had labored on quite a bit, but had not made very attractive. Uh, Carnegie completely revamped the entire system, and then he added other grades borrowed from uh, Scottish masonry. Mm. Uh, and they at the, at the top end, they created a kind of a priest grade and a regents grade. The priest grade would be those members that were particularly uh, disposed to occult research, And studies of that nature, Mm -hmm. whereas the regents grade would be those who were more at home with administration and they would actually be in charge of the order's. Uh, business right so it was a
0: kind of the the the, the spirit and the, the, the matter splits there at the top yeah. on the top level what uh, was adam weishaupt's intention really that occult in the beginning was that his path
1: i don't think so i think his uh his interest in the occult was spurred by his discovery of how the occult was so attractive to all these people that were joining the other secret societies at that time. And that his own uh, views were more prone to dismissing the superstition, anything that smacked of a religious institution. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the attacks of the Martinists and the Rosicrucians didn't disabuse him of such notions because they were uh, basing their attacks on his irreverence for church and state. Yes. Even though the same church was responsible for suppressing them. Yeah, yeah. What, was he a deist? I think, uh, yeah, I think a I mean, he was accused of being a deist. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, based on his philosophical principles, that would be the the, uh, the position that was most suitable for him. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like John Adams described as, you know, God created all this and then he gave us minds so we could take care of ourselves. <laughs> yeah. He's not sitting there listening to the petitions and prayers of all of us. He's long gone. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And of course, there's Spinoza also, which which uh, played a role in the formation, I believe, of Weishaupt thinking, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. What I find interesting talking about his background uh, is the Jesuit part, because of course, Ignatius of Loyola, who created the Jesuit order, he created a whole... You could call that system I'm going to be stoned now by some people. uh, You could call that system occult almost their way of meditation, their way of disciplining themselves. is a very you find parallels in all the deep occult and uh, ceremonial magical systems, right? Mm -hmm. So was do you think that Weishaupt could have been in his view, positively influenced by that to pursue that path?
1: Yes, I think that the methods of the Jesuits inculcated themselves in his own perceptions, you know, his own pedagogical uh, efforts mm-hmm. that he fell back on the Jesuits. And, you know, I'm not totally anti the Jesuits. I mm-hmm. mean, it's it's unlike the Dominicans, they weren't torturers. Yes. And they, uh, I mean, my, my feelings are more based on certain personal things such as their uh, the Jesuit relations when they were first in North America and living with the Iroquois and the Wyandotte and other native tribes, they produced 73 volumes that are just absolutely incredible sources of knowledge for the way the native Americans of that time thought or they weren't Americans. They were, you know, the the, the First Nations in that area thought. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, the, you know, it's like the... And because they viewed them as savages that nobody in their right mind would take seriously, they recorded it all impartially and with no filtration. Okay.
0: So because... So it, yeah, yeah, sure. You don't take serious something, so you don't have to take care of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Interesting. So... But it, it does provide a really interesting. Uh, it's a great source for anybody who wants to uh, know about mm-hmm. Iroquois mm-hmm. beliefs and dream mm-hmm. or social structures and oh, right. things like that. I mean, it's like it's very sophisticated society. Uh, oh, definitely, definitely, and uh, and so that
0: certainly was a a, a, a way of thinking that also. Adam Weishaupt had kind of inculcated in him himself and, and, and carried it along, well, right? And I think just the love of education.
1: Yeah. And the yeah. idea that oh you know, you can you can you know, by making someone intelligent, you're gonna make a better person that's more apt to uh do good in the world. The, the the point he's made with the difference between him and the Jesuits is that he was not trying to uh, control how they thought mm-hmm. after they had been educated.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, what I have not yet been able to figure out for myself, well, I have not read all the 900 pages yet, to be honest, but um, what, what was his political aim? Where was he going for? Was it a revolution he was looking for? Was it evolutionary development that he was looking for within the state as it existed? Did he want it to change the power structure in the state? What, what was his final thought?
1: I think that you would have to say not a revolution, but that, and here's something where I disagree with people that say the Illuminati were failures. Mm. Because he did, they did succeed in infiltrating the court system, the educational system, and even the administrative systems of Bavaria at that time. And in fact, some of the uh, members after the hullabaloo died down returned and held very important political uh, positions like Montgelas. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a director of foreign policy, uh, but uh, I think there were like at least thirty Illuminati members were all throughout the uh, the Bavarian educational system mm-hmm. and in key roles where they were determining who got to teach and who didn't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when their anonymous detractors were first publishing broadsides against them vice challenged them to expose their identities and or otherwise their their attacks could only be taken as the you know chaotic ramblings of cowards mm-hmm. and they just responded how dare how could we dare come out since your people are all through the courts mm-hmm. you have so and so at the top here you have these people in the criminal courts you have these people in the civil courts litigation is you know you know, it's impossible. And there again, here we are in the same in the same thinking again.
0: Um, how did Adam Weishaupt end? I mean, what was his? What happened with him after 1786? What happened to him?
1: Well, he had to flee with uh, his confederates. I mean, it was still there was still some doubt as to his identity because his detractors referred to him as W, mm-hmm. but. Once uh, he saw the way the wind was blowing, he fled to Gotha, mm-hmm. whose Duke Ernst was a Illuminati member. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and in the Protestant part of Germany, right? Yeah, Right. And the Bavarian elector actually asked him to extradite Weishaupt back so he could face just punishment, and he refused. But he also uh, grew cold to him after some of the Illuminati writings were published, that presented the order in a less than flattering light
0: mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. But, which uh, were which were again published by their detractors right yeah they, yeah they went through the munich uh, uh, censorship so obviously yeah, their sure. their authors were approved yeah 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 exactly and he died in gossa then or or what yes and, yeah. i think it was like 1830 okay so and you know he 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 was crushed by the by this. I'm sure. According to 4 and several members of the Illuminati, tried to uh, enlist them in their efforts to restore the order. Mm-hmm. Uh, one in particular, named Bode, who actually went to France and his own uh, ex- excursions into France and other parts of Europe led support substantiated some of the wilder illuminati uh machinations you know he met mirabeau in france so of course mirabeau must be an illuminati member who is also pulling the strings for the french revolution right of course well
0: that brings me exactly you read my mind now because we have to talk about france a little bit uh, still because um for some reason it's not just because le forestier wrote that book but um It might have to do with the French Revolution, which was imminent at the time. Um, But um, somehow the the, the Illuminati seemed to live on a little bit in in France uh, in the late late 18th century, early 19th. Uh,
1: How how about that? Uh, You know, the French police actually picked up on some of the Bavarian uh, propaganda Mm -hmm. against the Illuminati. And took it seriously. I mean, there's the point after uh, Valmy and other Jena, uh, other victories of Napoleon and, and the Holy Roman Empire, mm-hmm. where the French were uh, controlling many of the states of what's now Germany. That, but that was early,
0: early 19th century
1: already. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. And they. The, their police and intelligence took the uh, Illuminati story very seriously. Okay. And they thought to detect the Illuminati's work in the act of the resistance to their occupation. Oh, okay. I mean, yeah, because you remember, you know, Beethoven and Gartha, others celebrated Napoleon's yeah, advent at, at first. And then yes, they exactly. he betrayed. Yeah. Then they yeah. looked at him as a total betrayer Absolutely. Absolutely. of those ideals. Which, when
0: you look at his personal history, seems quite correct. And once again, talking about Egyptian masonry, Egyptian masonry was initially a Republican and licensed and uh, um, very open-minded movement. And that's why they were then also disbanded by Napoleon, who himself had brought the Egyptian movement into the country. So it's it's a very, very strange story. But what about Illuminati? In France herself, uh, do we see that as well?
1: Well, you have you know the visits of people like Bode. Uh, I don't. The s- forestier doesn't. Uh, he he presents some of the uh, you know Cagliostro and other people that the uh, individuals like Abi Bahruel who who created the. Illuminati bogeyman Mm. uh, that they cited people like this as having positions in the Illuminati. They just, anyone, any figure uh, who's of name recognition would have been drafted by them into the Illuminati just to prove their point. Mm. Uh, And he finds no connection between some of these individuals and Illuminati members. But... Other than Bode and a few others, there was very, most of the Illuminati um, just went to ground and waited for the, you know, the skies to clear. hmm mm-hmm, yeah. um, Some actually landed on their feet. Others uh, just, you know, went off into obscurity. Right. I mean.
0: Yeah, yeah. and. It, well this is of course a talk an interview and a book about the original bavarian illuminati and we have mentioned of course what has happened with that word and that name today but you just said something he was creating the illuminati bogeyman so maybe we should talk about that bogeyman for a few minutes at least in order to make oh, things, sure. put make things clear and um so can we really trace down the path that this illuminati order took from there where they started to becoming the bogeyman to becoming the uh conspiracy theory number one worldwide almost so to speak well,
1: i think the the uh, papers that they had written and had been edited and republished by the uh, uh, by authors approved by the Bavarian censors, mm-hmm. probably uh, made a great impression on people looking for answers as mm-hmm. to the, you know, and they saw this is a perfect explanation. These people had insinuated themselves throughout the Society of Bavaria, but luckily they were detected and flushed out before they could do any damage. Mm-hmm. But Probably in France, they went undetected, and this is what happens if you don't right. clean them out. But I think it's also you know you could you could look at it from another standpoint as an egregore. You know that the, the yeah. Illuminati, the Bavarian Illuminati group, was a was an idea seed, mm-hmm. and their rotting created the thought form yeah. that has gone on to you know, I mean the. the Illuminati, as they are believed to be today, might not be real, but the belief in the Illuminati is real, yeah, and that reflects a cultural reality mm-hmm. that that uh, is part of uh, is part of the aspects of an egregore. Mm-hmm. That's an, that that's interesting. takes
0: on very interesting point of view.
1: Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Go ahead, go ahead. Yeah. So I think you know that that while the Illuminati themselves, there's, I don't think there's a the golden thread from Adam Weishaupt into, you know, whoever's pulling the strings behind yeah. Supreme court justice selection or, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Macron has for breakfast. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 But I think there's, you know, there, there is some point, but I also think that even if there were people that thought they were pulling the strings, they'd be sorely disappointed by results because, uh, Reality is just too chaotic in
0: some ways. A bit more complicated than, 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 yeah, yeah, I I always say we are we are protected of that kind of humans by the incapacity of, 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 of doing it. Actually, what's that phrase in, uh, in that movie that, um, came out lately. Um, don't look up is the title of the movie. Oh, right. And, and you're, you're, um, Jennifer Lawrence says there, that famous phrase, you're giving them too much credit. They are much too chaotic in order to achieve what you think they can achieve something like that i'm not citing it completely correctly her her phrase is just on the spot but that's a bit what you yeah. what you're just saying yeah. a great movie by the way in in that respect yeah absolutely
1: yeah i enjoyed it
0: yeah 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 well um john um, we are coming towards the end of our talk unfortunately already um any projects um, of yours personally that uh, we should mention here? I don't know. New books, new translations, new new things that we should be on the
1: lookout for here on the South Hermes podcast? Well, I'm glad you asked. Sure. <laughs> no, I, have, I, I translate several books a year. Okay. Uh, but one book I translated recently, but should be coming out uh, late this year or early next year is on. The Norse colonies of Greenland, okay And actually it's the author's French. Uh, he was a student of Roger Boyer, who was like the Dean of uh, Scandinavian studies in France. Mm-hmm. And he took the novel approach of studying Greenland by not just looking at the uh, uh, the Scandinavian archives, which most people look at, sure, but asking the Inuit. Mm-hmm. And getting the folklore, and then uh, pairing that with all this archaeology that's been going on that hasn't been really discussed that I've seen except in you know the more obscure academic journals, mm-hmm. as well as uh, he does a study of uh, church history and map making of Europe in that time. Mm-hmm. And his, his point is that the greenland colony, was not, as the popular narrative goes, uh, successful for a time, climate turned bad, and the people grew starved and weakened until the Eskimo were able to wipe them out. Mm -hmm. He says, absolutely not the case. Mm -hmm. In fact, they worked with the Inuit, they traded with the Inuit, but they also went into the what they call the North Sether, which were these northern excursions into northern Canada, mm-hmm. and traces have been found all the way to Hudson Bay. So when you think about the Vikings, they were all over North America, and this, and the material he's pulled out to support this is just revelatory. Right. It's a real. I think it's just good. To, I mean, there'll be conventional historians that say this can't be true, mm-hmm. but. You know, yeah, yeah. At one time Greenland paid more tithes to the to the Vatican than Venice. Oh, really? Wow. Because they were so wealthy. It was a, they supplied 3 fifths of the uh ivory, walrus ivory, okay. to the church for all its uh, religious. Okay. Okay, okay. Yeah, I see. It's a, but it's, you know, this book basically says they were there. He all he ends with a a look at a possible Norse site in New England, Mm -hmm. where I live. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. that interests me. Interesting. Well, uh, fascinating.
0: Uh, When does this original French book date from?
1: Well, this was his paper we, we actually got world rights uh, our author Claude Le Coutu, who we've published about 16-17 books out. ah yeah Claude Le Coutu, of course yeah sure yeah 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 and he's a friend and he, he sent me this, his uh, rewritten thesis mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. ah great so did you also translate the Claude Le Couture books on for inner traditions yeah right right so I have quite a few of them on my shelves here yeah I, I'm, I'm very fond of him yeah absolutely absolutely well, John, thank you. Anything else you would like to, to, to add to that? No, I think we've exhausted everything for the moment. Okay, great. been great. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for being with us here today. And um, well, good luck with your upcoming projects and everything else that's coming up for you. And well, keep going. What else can I say? Well,
1: thanks. It was great to talk to you. Thank you.
0: After the Black Snow that we heard initially, it was now Blue Notes, Blue Notes by Airtone. Thank you Ayrton, for your lovely music and uh, well, maybe I can tell you more about them some other time. And uh, thanks, a big thanks to John Graham for being with us here today for this wonderful talk on the Bavarian Illuminati and the book translation he did, but of course mostly we talked about what's in the book not just about the mere outside of the words. That's what we always should do. Yeah, well, that's the end of this show. And I know you're all now wanting to hear me on our anniversary. And right you are. Okay, let's go. So the anniversary is exactly in 10 days, on the 20th of April, because on April the 20th, 2017, I released the very first episode with Alan Richardson as my guest back then. And at this occasion, we do two things. The first is a special week, a very special week, because we will have those two regular Sunday shows, as always. And in between on the 20th and on the 22nd, there will be two more special shows. Special shows with special interviews with special people. So let me tell you the whole week. Sunday, the 17th of April, which will be next Sunday, is episode 8 of season 8, our regular episode. But that's already a very special episode because not only I have two people as my guests, but two very special people. It's Samuel Robinson and Ian Gadwin, from the Pantsovers website. Many of you, I'm sure, know the Pantsovers website. The interviews with those guys are rather rare because they are very busy and especially Sam who has just released his book on Al Alois Mailander. Very exciting book I have in hands here and we're going to talk about what caused them to create that website, what is their personal background, what does it mean to them, what is Rosicrucianism today and who are Mylander and other people that might you might not have heard of, of but you should have? The Pantsovers on next week's regular show on Sunday, the seventeenth. Then comes the anniversary edition on the twentieth. Special episode, our second trio episode. Trio, remember what that is? I invite somebody to be my co-host and that somebody is somebody who was already guest on this show my guest and it will be Carl Abramson who will host with me a very special person and it was Carl who suggested to invite him and right he was Lionel Snell also known as Ramsey Dukes who has Written many books uh, over the years, but they are very special books, and he is a very special person. I must say, I've hardly ever had such a interesting interview where n- completely new thoughts are being given to you. It's 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 fun. That doesn't mean that other interviews don't have those, but it was just really great. And uh, so you will have that as the fifth anniversary special on the twentieth. That will be Carl Abramson and myself, Rudolf. Receiving and talking to Lionel Snell, and um, you will really enjoy that. Ramsey Dukes, for those who don't know who Lionel Snell is. Okay, and only two days later, on Friday the 22nd, another special edition. A special edition with um, Ronnie Pontiac. Ronnie, you've heard the name, haven't you? Hmm, you should. if you have read Tamra Lucid's book, or maybe listened to the episode in January that interview I did with Tamra Lucid on her book on Manly P. Hall, the uh, wonderful book, one of the best discoveries of 2021 I made, and this book is she, she is really she's, she she has been doing so well. This little book has become a real hit, and of course, the other important person she talks about in that book is next to Manly P. Hall, Ronnie Pontiac, who then became her husband and still is her husband. And Ronnie has agreed to tell us the story from the protagonist's side. I believe it's the first time that he does that, and I'm very excited he has decided to do that with us here on the Thought Hermes podcast. So that will be our second special edition. And then following Sunday, Sunday will be be the 24th again, it's regular Sunday, episode Sunday, and my guest then, and because it's the anniversary week, I will already tell you now, is Terry G. Simonson, and it will be, we will be talking about his book on the history of the paranormal, and it's the first time that the paranormal really appears here on the show, and I think after five years, it's about time, because the subtitle of the show is... We are talking about occultism, about esoteric world, about mysticism and the paranormal. And it's finally time to talk about the paranormal. So, once again, on the 17th, it'll be the Pansovers, Sam Robinson and Ian Gladwin. On the 20th, I will receive, together with Carl Abramson, Lionel Snell. On the 22nd. I will talk to Ronnie Pontiac, Tamra Lucid's partner, husband, and protagonist in her book. And then on the 24th, regular episode again with Terrier G. Simmonson on the history of the paranormal. But that's not all, guys. There is another surprise. The big one comes now. On the 20th, on the 5th anniversary day, I will launch an internet radio. Yeah! k radio and um, if you want to know more about that uh, i'll just tell you one thing for the moment it will be a radio where i will present um mainly internet but, but, uh, mainly podcasts from the Service podcast but also from other friends who do their esoteric podcast and if you don't want to go around and walk around and look and just want to tune in in one channel and find really nice, interesting, and good content about the esoteric world. That will be Kaikobot Radio. It will grow over time. It will be a little bit smaller in the beginning, but within a few months, I'm sure we will have a really full program of many, many interesting things. And that will be Kaikobot Radio. And the technical details, how to tune in and how to find out, that you'll find out between now and the 20th. I'll let you No overtime, and that was the big surprise. I hope you liked it. Kaikobat Radio starting on the 20th of April, on the fifth anniversary of the Thoughts Hermes podcast. So that was it. Thank you for listening for that long, long outro here today. And, um, well, I'm really excited about all that. I hope you are too. Do become a patron we need you (laughs) thank you and uh, so for now I tell you take care stay tuned hear you soon